I had the answers within me. I didn't. I wasn't necessarily looking for the answers from from anywhere else. I knew they were in me somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just had to eat them out, and I just had to ask myself the right questions, and I had to keep thinking about what I, my relationship with Dad, and and how how we move forward. Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast series. Uncovering God in the creative arts. At the biggest international arts festival in the world, Sanctuary First stops to ask, where does faith and art meet? to Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast that seeks to engage with musicians, artists and creatives who have come to the Edinburgh International Fringe Festival. I'm Albert Bogle and today I'm joined by John Lawrence. John is a Welshman and he's an author, a poet, a playwright and a musician who has been educating learners of all ages for the last five years and more. And I'm delighted, John, that you're able to come and be part of this podcast today. There's lots we could talk about because you've got quite a backlog, an extensive catalogue of things that you're involved in. Could you maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are? Well, I, uh, I suppose my background is in music. That's where I, I, I trained. I trained as a musician. Um, but I soon got to the point where I wanted to find out a little bit more about the characters that I was writing in my songs about. I wanted to know a little bit about their backgrounds and their histories. Because when you write a song, you've, it's essentially you've got um, three minutes to say something profound or maybe even earth-shattering, which is why John Lennon's Imagine is so wonderful. Um, and it's a real art to say so much in such a small space of time. Um, and I did that for a long time, but what I wanted to do was, was to look at writing because I could take, instead of taking a big idea like World Peace that uh, Lennon wrote about and condensing it into three verses, I wanted to go the other way, start with a small idea um, and a seed of an idea, if you like, and then see how it grew as a writer. Um, and that's when I started to write short stories, which then became uh, novels, novellas. And uh, working with children, I had the opportunity to write some plays for some schools, uh, for the school I was working at. So that became, they became musicals. uh, And that got me interested in writing for the stage. uh, And now I write for the stage as well. So I do lots of different things. I've had lots of uh, great opportunities. And I just, I'm curious about everything. So that, that's, that's my reason for doing all these things. I'm a, I like, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing for a writer to be curious, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Because it gives you an opportunity for imagination to be developed and to grow and uh, to be open to ideas and 
Well, that's people. what being alive is. It's, it's, t- yeah. it's having those, having an idea, having the imagination and following it. Um, you know, I, I sometimes get very frustrated that as, as a teacher, that the arts are just pushed aside in, in schools in favor of, you know, maths, English, computing, you know, sciences. When, you know, the creative, some people are only creative. I was dreadful at school. I couldn't, I'm, my maths is dreadful. But I could write a story from a very young age, and I could uh, write a song from, a, from a, an early age, but that's not recognized um, at, at the school. And so I had to find my place where my, uh, my creativity would be, uh, I suppose, acknowledged or appreciated. Yeah, I, I think you make a good point there. And even within the sciences and maths and all that, there is a creativity that is there to be unlocked. Mm. But the problem is that the way we teach these topics, we don't, we don't allow that creativity to come. And as someone, we were talking about a faith podcast here, but the interesting thing for me is that uh, I believe we're made in the image of God who is a creator and the creative spirit of God that we're made in his image and that creative need to create mm-hmm. is, is part of how God has made us in his image. And therefore, I think we, we miss out in the human potential when we don't uh, honour creativity. And I think you're absolutely right to, to mention that and to, to bring that out for our listeners to start thinking about just the importance of the creatives among us. And uh, often they're struggling, aren't they, yeah. to, to, you know, just to, to make ends meet because um, we, we're so driven to be creating uh, jobs to to create wealth, to create, you know, more things, more stuff, rather than... Well, I mean, uh, there's there's a great film called um, Dead Poets Society, and there's a lovely line in there which sums it up for me. When Robin Williams is talking to a, a bunch of uh, students, and he's talking to them, he's trying to enthuse them, enthuse them about poetry. And he says, you know, Maths, English, you know, people, you, if you want to go into business, architecture or banking, whatever, these are all very noble pursuits. And they are essential for sustaining living, sustaining life. But, you know, the arts, poetry, love, that is what we live for. That is life. Mm-hmm. And and for me, that's that's the where I feel most alive when I'm listening when I'm listening to music, when I'm writing, when when my that side of my brain, which is creating, when that's working, that's when I feel most alive. Yeah, and I think it's back to that old adage I often say to people, you know, science tells us how things work, engineering tells us how things work. But we're all searching after the why. Why am I here? What's the purpose of this? What, you know, where am I going? And what, what's, what will my life have achieved? And how will I have achieved anything in community to be part of this, not on your own? Yeah. We're not people, we're not, we're not made to be people who live on our own, in, but we're made to live in community. And how do we foster that whole area of community and, and allow these gifts and talents within people to be explored? 
I noticed that one of the things that you've been talking about too is you've been working with children. How do you, how do you, how does that inspire you? Well, children are you know, the the real joy in my life, particularly the, the the really young kids that I work with, the preschool children, the primary school children, because from them you get pure enthusiasm. It's it, they just appreciate the simple things, like a silly song, a funny face. Um, I've been doing shows here at the Fringe as the music man, um, and you know, all I've got to do is bang my head on the microphone and it, people erupt in laughter and, and, and you can't beat the sound of children laughing. It's, it's, the, it's the best, best sound. Um, and, I mean, I, I started working as a lecturer uh, in, in colleges and, and universities and very quickly became disillusioned with it. Um, and then one day I was asked by my son's nursery, they said, can you come down and just sing a couple of songs with the kids? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went down and sang the old Twinkle Twinkle and Old MacDonald and started to realise how much I enjoyed it because you just get that pure enthusiasm. They don't care whether it's cool music or whether it's even good music. Um, all they care is that they're involved in the process of, of, of having fun and making making enjoyment and so that led on to me staying at that little nursery just doing it week after week and then that became another nursery then another play school and then a pre-school pre and another school and next thing I know I'm I'm performing to children in New Zealand and, and it's, it's gone all the way around the world and um, and in the ex everywhere I go it's exactly the same thing they just want to be entertained. They, they don't care what's cool. They just want to have fun. And, you know, I love, I love making that happen. You know, I was just thinking there again, my wee faith connection here, is of course Jesus seemed to have loved children. And when the adults and the people around him said, you know, um, you, you can't bring the children here, mm. Jesus said, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. If you want to know about God and you want to know about about life start with the children and he brought a child into their midst and said except you become as a child you'll never enter the kingdom of god and and i think what he was trying to say there is back to what you're saying is there is a simplicity and an honesty in children they tell you what they think mm. but they, there's an honesty and acceptance uh, of what you offer they, you know, they, which they we very say. quickly lose, yeah. and sadly, which you know, when we when we are jaded by experience mm -hmm. and some of the difficulties that we later face in life, we lose that um, that beautiful naivety, if you like, um, and that. But that's why I, I I love children because you know they they're honest, they're true. Some of them are demanding, mm -hmm. but. Um, um, but they're just—they give me life. In, 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 they sort of give me energy and, and a reason to get up in the morning. I, I think you're onto something. It's very, very important for life, and we 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 neglect the children at our peril, mm -hmm. and society neglects the children at the peril, you know, and we neglect our, our own children and our, you know, our, our grandchildren. 
uh, if we neglect them, it's a peril because they're longing for deeper relationships. We just finished a podcast there with uh, someone who was uh, talking about when uh, Thera Heard met uh, Kurt Cobain. And uh, <laughs> it's an interesting thing to these two people. Yeah. One was grounded in her faith, uh, in the Methodist faith, but she had so much compassion in this conversation with, uh, with Kurt who was someone who had a very happy childhood mm -hmm. up until he was nine, and then his parents divorced. Yeah. And he never wanted his parents to be divorced. Uh, he was longing for them to be together again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it works out, this, this, this longing for rolling back to what it was, sure. what he had lost. Which gets me maybe coming to the next area that we might want to talk about, which is the more serious thing that you've been engaged with, is this book that you've written, Good Grief, but also the play that you've brought to the, the, the festival here, Good Grief. Can you tell us a little bit about this and why you, you, you got involved in writing it? Well, I'd, uh, I lost my father in 2017, late 2017. He had cancer, and, um, and we had a, a strange sort of relationship. I mean, we loved each other, but we didn't always get on. Um, he, we're very, we were very different characters. My dad was very sort of stoic, sometimes quite formal, very proud, um, pragmatic. I'm the complete opposite. I'm, you know, wear heart on the sleeve, and, um, and, and so sometimes we did clash. But we'd we'd just about got there at the end, and and then the the grief hits. I mean, I'd lost my mother um, in 2015 after a long. She had a stroke in 2002, and so she I kind of lost most of that person when she had the stroke, um, and then she died in 2015, and so and then I'd also lost a friend in uh, the 9/11 attacks. Um, we'd lost a child, and so grief seemed to be, it felt like it was following me almost. Mm. And I thought, I need to get a handle on this, because, you know, with the, <clears throat> with the depression that I was suffering, I thought, this, this could get out of control, so I need to get a handle on it. So one of the things I started doing was writing poetry. Uh, just set, not about trying to address grief head-on, but rather, let's take some of the nuances of grief, some of the this particular aspects of grief. So maybe, I mean, I started writing about, um, there was a poem about selling the house after dad died. Just that little section of grief, trying to understand what's happening there. There's, there's another one which is all about um, the, the wake. How, how, do you, how do you deal with a wake? After a, you know, after a funeral, you've got all that, planning and, and stuff to do when you're, you're most confused in many respects. So I started, I'd started writing those and then, but I, when dad had, just before dad had had his, had passed away, we were sat in uh, Leicester Royal Infirmary, we were having a chat and he asked me what I was gonna spend the money on, my inheritance money. And I said, well, I'd rather not talk about that to be honest, dad. But I could see he needed to know. And so I said, you know, I could clear off a couple of debts and it'd be nice to take the family on holiday. And he said, yeah, good idea. And then I, I said, well, I could do that trek. 
because I had planned to do a trek about five years or so earlier uh, through the Sahara for the Stroke Association, but it all fell through for various reasons. So I said to Dad, look, I can do that now. You know, I can use some of that money. And, and, and he said, yeah, okay. But I said, if, if I want to raise some money for, in this case, the Big C charity, a Norfolk um, cancer charity, then it'll need to have maybe a bit more scope, a bit more scale. So I said to him, I'm going to, I'll do five treks on five continents, five deserts, 100 kilometers in each, so 500 kilometers. And uh, he said, yep, sounds good. <laughs> that was my dad's ringing endorsement. Uh, and, and that's what I did. So I started planning for it, and within nine months, I, start, I did my first trek. So, I mean, that's, that's how it all came about, is, is a, as a, a way of trying to understand the grief while raising some money. It just seemed like I could do two things at once. So did you raise a lot of money? I can't remember. I think it was about 8,000 in the end, something like that. Wow. But, um, but for me, it was even more valuable. Yeah. Because each of those deserts... Well, one, one of the reasons for going to the desert is because... I struggle sometimes with all the hullabaloo of, of the noise that's around us. You know, the sounds of vehicles beeping as they're reversing and, you know, and uh, you know, pumped up noise in shops that you don't really need to hear and, and beeping phones and all this stuff sometimes gets too much for me. And I thought, I need some mental space and some physical space. And so, you know, the desert gives you that in, in, in spades. So mm -hmm. I, I, I went, first of all, to the Atacama, and, and that's where I found some beautiful silence, some real silence. Um, and that gave me the, the opportunity to start, you know, just thinking about my relationship with Dad, the things that had worked well, the things that hadn't worked well. One of the things that came through when I was doing those treks was... You know, the reason, some of the reasons that I didn't get on with Dad was because he denied me certain things. And at the time, I didn't know why he was doing it. You know, you can't do this. And I thought, well, why not? And it would be because I said so. Um, but then, as I, I had kids of my own at this point, and I was starting to realise that you know, a lot of those decisions that he made... I'm now having to make for my kids. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm finding myself saying, because I said so. Um, because sometimes it's, 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 it's too complicated and it's too much hassle and time to, to sit down and explain why you can't have those new pair of shoes. Or, or you know, yeah. um, I mean, I never went without. I mean, my dad was incredibly generous. And, but, you know, there's some of the decisions that he made I, I found difficult. But, I, but when I started to walk the, the, those deserts, all of those decisions, all of them, started to make a lot more sense. And I wished I could have sort of said, I, I wish I could have made that discovery before he passed away so I could say, yeah, I now know. I now understand. Yeah, what, what's coming into my mind is making the mechanics in the living years. Mm. You know, but do you know, eh, John, do you know there's a link between Jesus walking in the desert and his father. There's a beautiful, beautiful bit in the Bible where Jesus has been baptized 
And the Holy Spirit comes down and the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Frank Lake, who was a, a, a clinician and a, a clin clinical theologian in the 1960s, wrote a whole thesis around the cycle of grace and the cycle of works. Mm -hmm. And he said that most of us have fathers who work on the cycle of works. So they start off with saying, you've got to achieve. Mm -hmm. And if you achieve, then that will sustain you. And that will give you a, it will give you a prestige. And that will take you to the place of acceptance. And we, we, we work on this whole theory of, of, of achieving to please, mm -hmm. you know. And why did Jesus cope in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and go through the temptations? What sustained him was that he knew he was loved because the cycle of grace works the opposite way around. It says, you're accepted. You know, regardless mm -hmm. what you do, you're accepted and you're loved. And that begins to give you a prestige and an understanding that, that I am. And that sustains you. And then it helps you to achieve. Mm -hmm. And it's a complete, you know, the opposite cycle. And Frank Lake brought that out in, 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 in one of his writings. And I was just thinking about you in that, as a, as a kind of ni a nice link there about um, feeling going and walking this desert and in order that you might maybe hear your father saying, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, I, I, I don't know if I heard anything or if I, I believed anything. I think I was essentially having a conversation with myself. Um, which, you know, some people might say is, is actually a conversation with God or Jesus. Yeah. Or, but, but I was trying to find out who I was. And, and, and there's, there's, you know, it's the old joke that, you know, if, you, you know, if you're walking through the desert that long, you know, you, you'll be talking to Elvis, you know, <laughs> let alone anyone else. And, and, and when I was walking in the Sahara, I could kind of see that because I... I there was times when I was walking through the Sahara where everything, whichever way you look, 360 degrees, is exactly the same. And you have no idea. Midday, when the sun shines down on you and there's no shadow, you could be, west could be anywhere. And north isn't true. Mm. So, um, and at that point, you know, you you can see how people start to look inwards for, for help or, or they look elsewhere to, to, to faith, to, you know, to religion, to, to, to try and give them some answers. Um, now, I kind of was in, in... My thought was that I had the answers within me. I, didn't, I wasn't necessarily looking for the answers from from anywhere else. I knew they were in me somewhere. Mm -hmm. I just had to eat them out. And I just had to ask myself the right questions. And I had to keep thinking about what I, 
my relationship with dad and and how how we move forward and how I honor him so I mean my 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 thought of honoring him is was a raising money for this charity but also thinking well how do I you know, there's, there's a, a, a saying that uh, some parents say to their kids, make your mistakes your own, you know. Don't make the same mistakes that your parents make. And I was thinking, well, what, what have I, can I learn from the, the way my relationship was with my father and how I can address those with my own kids? Because those are the questions that I was sort of asking. Um, and, and obviously about the grief, how am I going to, get this painful feeling to go away. But I knew they were all within me. And I just thought, if I've got this space around me, and this quiet, and this time, time to think, you know, I, we'd, we'd be walking for eight hours a day. And, and then we'd go back to the, to the tent, and then we would, I could sit up and look at the stars, and, you know, and, and then that, that, all that space and time was what I needed. Now, I was very lucky to have that. Now, I know a lot of people would be struggling. Now, if, you, if you're in the center of London and you're, mm. you've lost somebody, you, you need, sometimes, I believe you need physical space as well as mental space, just to, you know, to declutter as much as you can. Um, and some people don't have, have that uh, luxury. You know, I did. And I think I've sort of made the most of it. So did you keep a journal then when you were going? Yeah, uh, and that's essentially what the book is. It's, uh, it's my thought processes as I'm going through, right from losing Dad all the way through each of those tracks, and the preparation for the tracks, and then each of the tracks as well. So coming to the festival and bringing this to the public, it, it must be quite tiring and, and pulling a huge amount of, of energy out of you uh, and reliving some of this again? Well, I, I, that was something I was concerned about. Uh, you know, but I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that I've got to relive it every time because what I'm doing is, as I'm telling the story, I, I'm, I'm a narrator. So I'm, I'm, it's like I'm taking the role of a narrator rather than John. Right. So I can take a step back and tell the story. Um, I think it would have been harder had it been the case that at the end of those treks, nothing had really happened for me. You know, but I, on each, each part of the treks, some of them were harder than others, I learned something about myself or, or as I say, about the relationship I had with Dad or about my dad. Um, and I think... You know, that, that's the, the main thing for me, was to, you know, to keep that in mind, that, you know, just make sure I'm learning something. And, I, and as I'm going through this, this play every night, occasionally, you know, there's a little bit of, it touches a nerve, and you think, well, hang on, that's, I'm a bit close to that. So I sort of take a little step back and remember, you know, I'm telling a story now. Because um, I, I don't want to relive the pain of what happened, um, no, nobody wants to relive mm. the pain, uh, but you know I, I have to address it to some extent, so that I can show the journey from from 
that pain through to, you know, coming to terms with what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very brave thing to do, to be able to do that and um, to be able to share that with so many people at the fringe. Um, this revealing, this, I'm wondering again, there's a thing, you know, as a Christian, I think about the Spirit of God reveals things to us. This, 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 I was saying earlier on, uh, I was saying this in the last podcast too, that I think there's a lot that with, you were talking about within yourself, made in the image of God. We don't all get it right away. It's like a, a revelation, like something's uncovered. And we see another bit of the story. We see another bit of the story. And I'm wondering, (laughs) could I be so presumptuous as to think, or are you thinking that as you come to Edinburgh and do this play, that there's something else going to be revealed to you? Because you were going expecting. You, You went on these journeys expecting something. You were not going... You're not going without expectation in your heart, or you wouldn't have you wouldn't have stepped out because that was a faith thing to step out and say, "I'm going to do this." So, yeah, the journey continues because you've been talking about this journey. Mm-hmm. So, is this is this journey of grief of good grief? Because it's good. Are you really saying, "Yeah, I'm, I want to hear you how you are understanding good grief now"? Well, you know, yeah, the, it, it is a journey. I mean, what I've found with, with the grief is that it changes. Grief changes. At the, at the start of my journeys, my grief was controlled by anger, uh, resentment. I, I was angry at Dad that he hadn't gone to the doctors earlier, that he hadn't stopped smoking, for example. Um, I was angry that I and and I resented the fact that I didn't have more time silly things like I'm the I'm the youngest of the three siblings why did I end up with less time Mm. you know these silly things like that but as I started to go through the the process and go through different stages at different treks particularly when I got to New Zealand which is the place that I'd been with my father just before not long before he passed away where we'd really come to and start to try to understand each other and, and we talked more than we'd ever talked. And that, that meant that the New Zealand section of the uh, treks was, was filled with happy memories. And those happy memories led on to other happier memories. And suddenly you, the grief turns from something negative to something positive. And, 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 I, and I mean that in... In its truest sense, it's, it's a positive thing because that love, uh, that grief was a grief of um, pride. I was so proud of Dad. It was a grief of gratitude. So grateful that he did the things to put me through college, and he, I never went without. And you know, he loved me in in his own way. Um, but the love was the main thing because you can't have love without grief. Love and grief are the, are, are the same. Um, and the more I consoled myself with the, 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 the fact that the, the harder and more painful my grief was, was due to the, the, the amount that I was loved. Now, I was loved so much, so therefore I was going to be in so much grief. 
you can't separate love and, and grief. They're entwined like lovers. Yeah. What a wonderful point to maybe stop this particular podcast. Perhaps on another time we can mm. get a chance to talk further. John, yeah. I would like to be able to do that. But it's interesting that you talked about the last thing was that you knew you were loved. Yeah. Which takes me back to my Jesus insight. You know, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I would like to think that your father is looking down whatever he is and saying to you, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But more than that, that one day, perhaps when you come, faith might come to you in a new way to, to discover this heavenly father that says the same about you. But that's why we preach a bit, John. Yeah, yeah. We wait with <laughs> bated breath. Which I'm allowed to do. <laughs> but thank you so much you. for being with us and sharing with us today. Uh, it's been it's been a, a wonderful experience. That's great. Thank you for having me. And listen, I wanted to just thank our audience for looking in and listening. If you have been affected by some of the things you've you've heard and said, maybe you'd like to share some of that online with us. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, of course, you can get in touch with us about something that's more personal at contact at sanctuaryfirst.org.uk. Otherwise, please put your comments on, on the website or on the app or on Facebook. And, of course, these podcasts do go out on Spotify and iTunes and they are on our app and also on our website. So thank you for being part of our, our group. But before I do so, I want the last word to you, John, because I want you to be able to say where people can hear and engage with the, apart from buying the book, Good Grief, but also to come to the show. Yeah, the show is on at uh, Hill Street Theatre, five o'clock until the end of this uh, the fringe. And the book is available in all good bookshops. So there you go. You've heard it from here. And uh, until next time, God bless. God bless.